Welcome to Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest today is composer and music supervisor Doug DeAngelis. But first of all, the RIAA numbers for the year are out. This is the association of record labels that tallies up, well, first of all, assigns the gold records, but also tallies up the revenues each year. And what it found was in 2018, wow, the revenue for recorded music was up by 30% to almost $10 billion in the United States alone. There are now 50 million paid streamers. So in other words, a lot of people that are streaming music, and that amounts to about $6 billion or 60% of the total revenue. Interestingly enough, though, ad-supported was only up by about 15. In other words, the free tiers, which are ad-supported, the ad revenue didn't actually go up that much. So that was kind of curious. Downloads, however, were down by 26%. And you might say, wow, there's still such a thing as downloads. Yeah, a lot of people are still doing it. It's worth a billion dollars to the industry. So that's pretty amazing in itself. Some contradictory information here. The RIAA says that CDs were way, way down, 41% off the year before, 52 million are sold. I think that's pretty amazing, actually. 52 million CDs were sold last year. There were lots of returns from stores because stores aren't selling them. Many people don't have CD players or the ability to play a CD. I know I don't. I don't have a player. So it's still worth $700 million. So it's still a big business. And that's only the CD sales that we can count. Frequently what ends up happening is there are a lot of sales that are kind of off the books, at least the RIAA's books. So if you're selling CDs at a gig, there's no way to tally that up. If someone is selling them at church or online, you can't tally those. So these are not included. We don't know how much that is. I would venture to say that it's not a huge number, but it's probably significant. One interesting thing is that the average list price of a CD has actually gone up $13.43. That's pretty curious in the fact that if not that many people are buying them, don't you think you'd make it easier and less expensive for the buyers already? Well, that's not happening. Typical for the music business. Now, vinyl sales were only up 7% last year. Vinyl. We keep on hearing how great it's doing, but really it's not. It's not that much of the business. Vinyl is only 4% of the overall recorded music business in the United States. Digital music, however, is 85%. So, really, it's a digital music business. People, once upon a time, said that would never happen and we'd never be able to make up for the shortfall coming from CD sales, and yet here we are. So we'll see what happens next year. It looks like it won't be slowing down anytime soon. We'll see what happens. If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyownercircle.com. Don't forget about my online courses on mixing, production, branding, and music business success at bobbyosinskicourses.com. Also, get an expert analysis and objective opinion of your songs and mixes as a member of my Hitmakers Club. Go to hitmakersclub.com to learn more. Here's something new. USB 3.2 is out. 
Yes, the universal cereal bus that we all use in our computers. Boy, there's a lot of different flavors of it, and I'm going to go over what they are right now and hopefully can clear up some of the confusion, although I bet I won't at the end of this. So we're now at USB 3.2. In the early days, what we saw was USB 1.1, and this is the one that we initially saw in all the computers. That was really slow. That was 12 megabits per second. USB 2.0 came out and it was way faster at 480 millibits per second. And then when USB 3 came out, it blew past that at 5 gigabits per second. But since then, we've had a number of upgrades. USB 3.1 is actually 10 gigabits per second. Now we have USB 3.2, and that's at 20 gigabits per second. Officially, it's called USB 3.2 Generation 2 2x2. And really, what's confusing is this could mean anything from 5 gigabits per second to 20 gigabits per second. So you never actually know what you're getting on your computer. Usually it will say it's USB 2.0, 3.0, whatever, but now it might be 3.1, 3.2. Really what it means is how fast the speed is of that port. Now to confuse things even more, there's USB-C. USB-C, however, has a different connector. It's a mini USB connector. The default there is USB 3.1, but it adds a whole lot more. It adds power. So in other words, it can power devices. It adds display ports, so now it can actually send video out to displays. And in some cases, it will support Thunderbolt 3. Anybody who just bought a new computer, like I did, I just bought two new ones, found that Thunderbolt 3 and Thunderbolt 2 are two different animals, and they have two different connectors. So that means you have to go out and buy a bunch of adapters to talk to your older hard drives and interfaces. Well, that being said, that still works pretty well. But just to understand that the difference here, and the reason why we like Thunderbolt 3 is the speed is really blazing fast at 40 gigabits per second. Plus, it will power devices up to 100 watts, which is pretty amazing. However, don't forget, there's different cables, and the cables are expensive because, in fact, they have chips in them, so they need to be powered. As a result, you're going to pay a lot more for both USB-C and Thunderbolt 3 cables. One way around everything is just buy a dock that has all of them on there, and that's what I ended up doing. You buy a dock that talks to USB-C and talks to Thunderbolt 3, and guess what? All your other ports that you're missing on your new computer, they're there. They show up. So that's kind of a nice thing. But anyway, you want to stay away from anything below USB 2 if you can help it. And if you're buying something new, chances are you're not going to see any of that anyway. It's going to be USB 3. One of the things I would stay away from when you go out and you buy a memory stick, there are really good deals on memory sticks, on really high-capacity memory sticks. The big problem there, of course, is that they may be slow, they may be USB 1.1, they may be USB 2.0, and you're going to sit around and wait forever for the transfer when you go to transfer files on it. So, again, look for that USB 3.0 or USB 3.2, which is the brand new latest flavor of Universal Serial Bus. My guest today is composer, producer, and music supervisor Doug DeAngelis. Doug hit pay dirt early in his career when he recorded the Nine Inch Nails hit 
Head Like a Hole with Trent Reznor and world-renowned producer Flood. In 1989, Doug embarked on a world tour with Detroit techno crossover dance artist Inner City, but after that he moved to the studio world in New York City where he amassed over 300 album and remix credits, including 31 number one Billboard chart singles. Doug's album credits include New Order, Michael Jackson, Queen Latifah, Chaka Khan, Love and Rockets, Alicia Keys, and No Doubt, among others. Doug's career then shifted to Los Angeles, where his music was embraced by Hollywood producer Michael Mann as a scorer for his CBS crime drama series, Robbery, Homicide Division. His music has since appeared in over 100 television shows, including CSI, Bones, Cold Case, CSI Miami, and ER, as well as dozens of reality and late-night television programs. Doug is also the conference chair and co-founder of A3E, the Advanced Audio and Applications Exchange, a leading industry resource dedicated to the future of new music technologies. He's also involved in an interesting interactive music app startup called Stylus. In the interview, we talked about the early days of synthesizer programming, becoming a mixer in New York City, composing for television, his newly developed Stylus app, and much more. I spoke with Doug via Skype from a studio in Nashville. I know you went to Berkeley School of Music, and so did I. I think Berkeley, more so than other schools, has a high dropout rate because if you're any good, you're working <laughs> right away. Yeah, definitely. I mean, and that was the case with me. I, I wound up, it was a weird set of circumstances, but I wound up getting a tour with a band called Inner City that was kind of the first like club music, house music at the time, now EDM now, but house music then, that really crossed over into becoming like pop music. Um, and it was, I had no idea what I was getting myself into at the time, but the, the music director asked me if I would come and figure out how to take, the, take that music and turn it into a live band with like nine players. And so I went to Detroit and sampled everything off the record and kind of made it so everything was played with sticks because it was really vi- it was really rhythmic music and I wanted you to see it visually. And the tour was a big tour. It was like an arena tour. And it was weird to like do this sort of DJ-oriented oriented music on a huge stage like that. A lot of the tour was opening for a cool in the gang at the time. And so they were this big, giant live band. I mean, they're really fun to watch. And this was like, you know, electronic music. It made no sense. So... We did it with tons and tons and tons of electronic pads and players on stage. And interestingly enough, it, it, well, it was only supposed to be three weeks long and it wound up going for like eight months. We were out on the road forever. But the guy that I, who was that MD was just at A3E this year. That's the first time I've seen him since then. Really? Yeah. And he's had this amazing career. He won, he won a Grammy last year for Remix of the Year. And he's had this fantastic career. Talk, never saw each other the entire time. So it was a first. It was really nice to see him. It was really cool. You know, you mentioned Cool in the Gang. I have some experience with them, actually, because my first record deal was with Delight. And Really? Delight was a Polygram subsidiary, but it was the home of Cool in the Gang. Uh-huh, sure. And we were kind of like the token rock band that they had. Right, right. But they built cool and the gang their own studio and it's funny because they built it in philadelphia or near philly where we were close to and they were from new jersey so i could never figure out how that worked but what was interesting for me was that that's where i got some engineering chops because i had some technical expertise so i used to hang around the studio a lot and then you know it was like well we're doing songwriter demos why don't you do it and that's kind of you know where i got some of my chops 
Thank you, Cool. And it was usually Cool's little brother. And actually, they had a band, the brothers, the younger brothers had a band called the KGs, who were great. They were like, you know, 15 years old, and these guys were just monster really? players. Yeah. But, but that is exactly how it happens, right? Like, they ask you demos, and it's like, oh, this guy's really good. Have him come in and start doing the records. Have him start doing this. And yeah. Just how it happens, you know? And yeah, that's, that's awesome. I, I remember going out on the road with them, and every single night I would come watch their show yeah. over and over and over again. It was mind-boggling how many hits they had and how good they were. Yeah. It was mind-boggling. I mean, you know, I was like a 19-year-old. I, You know, my first thought of it was like, cool in the gang. Oh, that's going to be like, I just knew Celebration, you know, and I, I knew the, the couple big hits. But, man, when you got on the road with them and you just couldn't, it was them and SOS band, and both those bands were incredible. Yeah. We were like opening act. Those two bands were just stunning, but God, Cool and the Gang was it was just a a pulverizing lesson in everything, every single night. Just wow. Well, see, I saw them when they're kind of in their down period. When Saturday Night Fever hit, they had two songs on the record, so it was huge, and that kind of vaulted their career to another level. But then after that kind of dissipated, then they were back to playing clubs. Mm and trying to get back to where they were before. So I saw them in a level where they were probably at their worst, I would say, and just in terms of earning power. They were, you know, it was like, eh, we're players, this is what we do, you know, no matter how much money we make. And let's face it, when you're a musician, that's kind of the outlook you have to have because it's, <laughs> you know, you're up and you're down. So although you've had a pretty good career and a varied career, so I want to go back. Let's talk about Berkeley for a second and getting into Berkeley. I saw that you were there to study synthesis, which Berkeley had one of the first programs of that. Yeah. And they had a pretty good synthesizer lab, at least when I was there. How did you decide to do that? Because that's kind of an unusual career choice. Yeah. So when I was a kid, I, I was fascinated by synthesizers, just absolutely fascinated. And... I used to ride my bike to the music store that was probably like 25 minutes away from my house. When I was about, you know, not much older than my son, maybe 11 or so, and I would go there every day after school and I would program. It was like, the, this was maybe 1977 or so, 70, well, maybe 79, somewhere in there. And I would just program on the synthesizer, fascinated by it. And there was a guy there who, his name is John Mosey, and he wound up going on and working for Korg and kind of working with different companies later. We stayed, we're still friends, we've been lifelong friends since I was a little kid. Um, but he was older, he was. He worked there, and he kind of started teaching me. I still have my first chord monopoly over there. Uh, that was one of the, that gave me. That was the one that I would come in and play on all the time. So I was just fascinated by it. So when I got to Berkeley, I was a music synthesis major because that's the only thing I was really good at. I mean, I, I played, but I was really good at programming. And so I didn't even know Recording Studio World really existed much. It wasn't until I got into the car studio that I went. It was just an extension of programming to me because I saw it all through that thing. I didn't. I never saw it as, you know, the primary things, the recording console and these synthesizers are just what you are, were going to record. I saw it as the, the console was connected to my synthesizers and now I could do more with them. You know, it was just more knobs to play with. So I saw it all sort of backwards, and, and that's how I got into it. But that's the basis of electronic music, at least from the beginning when it first started. It was all-encompassing. You had to record whatever you were doing you know, electronically, whatever you're creating. So it was looked upon 
the whole the whole signal chain was looked at that way. So it, it was not uncommon. No, it's very much like what a DAW is nowadays, yeah. right? It's all built into this one thing, and the, and the tape's all built right in there, and you just capture it right there. So I, I you know, my perspective of it was very much like you know Cubase or something now of. The, the synthesizers are all there. It's just flowing right to the tape machine. And now I can capture it and I can do more stuff with it. You know, I never, it wasn't until later that I, I got more into the, the rest of it. And you know, the, the, the sort of engineering side or later, maybe a year later, you know, but it started with that stuff for sure. The fact of the matter is though, that there were never a lot of people that either were interested in deep programming or were good at it. And most of the people I know that did that, they had a rudimentary knowledge of, of what to do. And then it was like, eh, I don't want to go any farther. So you're one of the very few, I think, that, you know, would get into it on a level that we'd call advanced or, or more. Because most people just don't go that far on it. Yeah. And it really served me well. It was a, it, it taught me how to explore things and it taught me how to, you know, it taught me how to do things. Honestly, it was really the thing that, started me going it was that love of the depth of it and just to keep seeing what you could make happen and that became a very natural connection to dance music which i didn't even know about dance music when i was playing with synthesizers i knew about pop music i loved i grew up loving duran duran mm. loving bands like that and i mean i still look back and think nick rhodes when i look at when i listen back to those records those early duran duran records i think they had no sequencing they were the guy was doing that all with arpeggiators syncing them all by hand and on the fly and recording all the tape, it still blows me away. I mean, I still listen to it and think, damn, he's unbelievable, you know? So that, it was all that sort of early new wave music that hit me so hard. I was just in love with it. Early Prince, early that, just kind of everything from that era, Peter Gabriel, all of it, um, just really was overwhelming to me. So, you know, Berkeley was a bit of a culture shock for me because you know, new wave music in Berkeley. That's really, that's a weird mix. Yeah, you yeah, know? Right. I went in and I was like in class with, you know, Witten Marsalis's kids yeah. and stuff. <laughs> you know, I was going, and they were like, ew. So it's just kind of a big mess. And then I discovered the studio and I went, oh, this is where I belong. I didn't really belong there. You know, the sharp nine major seven thing was I it was hard for me it was really unusual to me but this was really obvious to me it was so it was like I had grown up if I was a jazz kid growing up as a little you know being one of their kids you know you just it's built into you you know so that stuff came so easy and then production came really easy because of that I just I guess from being fascinated by synthesizers and synthesis I was so dialed in at such a young age to layers and sculpting and building and all that stuff where a jazz kid would be really dialed into ear training and, you know, extensions on chords and all those kind of things that were hard for me. I learned them all later, but so we, I had sort of the backwards everything, you know, and I won't, but when I got in the studio, that was, that was where it was really comfortable for me. I just, it was very innate and, and I loved it. Okay. But I have a question for you there. I can understand the, the technical extension. That's one thing. Okay, that you understand signal flow, so you got it over here, so you can transfer it over here. But that being said, engineering is more than that, and it's ears. It's sonic training. So where did that come in for you? 
I think honestly, for me, that was more sort of just gift. I don't think that I, I think, you know, some, some guitar players are just, they, they work really hard, but their right hand is just amazing. You know, I think for me, that was a thing I never really had to learn. I, I was able to do it right from the beginning. And, and I, so I kind of had a weird beginning because I never, I shifted from programmer really to mix engineer almost directly. And, and I don't, I kind of bypassed the recording engineer phase. Wow. I did some of it for a little bit, but by the time I was 21 or so, I was mixing in New York City. Wow. And so it was a weird thing because that's a nice thought, but you also miss a lot of fundamentals, right? So a lot of my life has always been, has been kind of going backwards to the fundamentals. <laughs> you know what I mean? Going oh, I missed all this and, and really having to come back around and and voluntarily assist for people in New York City and voluntarily kind of dial into all that stuff. But until you know what you don't know, it's hard to do that. Yeah. So, you know, growing up, there's so much you don't know that you don't know that it takes quite a while to figure out all the things you don't know and then decide to start to learn them. And that was really been a lot of life for me because, yeah, I, I was a weird skip over well, how did that happen then? How did you go from being on the road to then mixing in New York City? Because that's a tremendous jump that people spend half a career before they actually do something like that. How did it happen for you? So I I went on tour, and then the the, the guys that I was on tour with, they, there's this sort of scene in Detroit called the Detroit techno scene, and it's basically, it really was rooted out of three DJs, Juan Atkins, Derek May, and Kevin Saunderson. They were the, the big three DJs there that kind of house music in, in the States was sort of Chicago and Detroit born. And then it moved to New York City. So Kevin was one of those key people. Inner City was his band. It was a singer from Chicago named Paris. And Kevin was the whole brain behind it. So, you know, that would be like what a what a Calvin Harris would be now or Zed or somebody like that in, in today's market. He was Kevin Saunderson. The band was Inner City. So after the tour, I went back to Detroit and lived in a loft with all of them and worked as an engineer and mixer. So it was all one guy. You know, they didn't have a different, you know, that's like a Nashville and L.A. thing. Like you got an, you got an engineer, then you got the mixer guy that comes in. I didn't even know that existed. I was just did both, you know, and you were kind of always mixing while you were going. Part of the, I think part of the fundamentals of electronic music is unlike a rock band or an orchestral recording or those things where you put everybody in the room and you mic everything up and you're dealing with all these phasing issues and all of the placement issues, with electronic music, it's kind of, you're cutting it in layers and it's really, what are you doing with it at the console that the the people you're making it with are hearing while you're recording that sounds cool to them. And ultimately that becomes the mix. Those layers building on top of each other and you're starting to put cool effects on things and doing all these things. And they're going, oh, I like that, I like that, I like that. And you're cutting into tape. And soon enough, you kind of have the mix three quarters of the way done. So why would you bring somebody else in to do it? So I think that's the net was the natural progression to mixing because it was part of the it was part of the process of production, not engineering and recording but we would kind of go right from programming to mixing and just sort of float right over that stage you know and so then i moved to new york i started working in new york for a band called the system who it's a brilliantly talented producer named david frank have you ever run across david frank 
No, but I know the name. So he was a great writer, great producer. He did like the programming on Susudio for Phil Collins. He was a, a kick-ass programmer. So for me, I was just in love. I was like, icon, boom. I mean, he did I Feel For You for Shaka Khan. Mm. He did all of those. Like, that was his sound. If you think about I Feel For You and you think about Susudio, it was that same sort of the horn stuff. Yeah, That was David's thing. And then he had this partner named Mick Murphy, and they had a band called The System. They had one really big single called Don't Disturb This Groove years ago. And it was kind of this sexy New York kind of half electronic. And, and they did like, uh, you know, Sheena Easton and all sorts of stuff like that. Um, but I started working for them at their studio and I met, uh, from there I wound up over at another big studio and, but through David and them, I can't remember quite how it happened. I met Shaka Khan and working with Shaka. And that was kind of, I was probably 21, 22 at the time. And I started doing Shaka records and that sort of, it rolled into doing a lot of different pop music. And, and also, you know, I was one of the only people in New York at the time that had come out of this beginning house music background, which was really, again, started in Detroit and Chicago. And now all of a sudden it, it bloomed into New York. It was underground music in New York. And it, I, I guess we just kind of got there at the same time. I think it was just pure luck. Got, I landed in New York the same time those DJs started coming up in New York and I knew how to do something that they were doing in their homes and people in the studios had come off of years of R&B records and stuff. And they just, it wasn't, part of New York music, you know, it was a new thing and it was different. And I think, you know, kids, when they get into this stuff, if you, if they catch the intersection of something new, that's what they do. Well, they have a, a walk in, they have an entrance, you know, in, and I think that's just a lucky break, I guess, you know? Well, I mean, we've seen that happen lately with EDM and the new generation of electronic music and how that that's all working. And they work much the same way, but more with loops where you worked with program synth and drum machines, and now it's more loop and sample based, but it's the same idea, really. Yeah, and and we were doing loops and samples even back then. I mean, uh, you know, before I ever moved went to Detroit, when I was still in Boston, I I had worked on that first Nine Inch Nails album. That was the first time I ever saw anybody walking with a loop was Trent, and I remember him looping this these weird little voices and just going, "What is he doing?" You know, what is that sound? And it was fascinating to me. And that was, that's the first time I ever saw it, you know? So it was starting to bubble up right around then too. So all these things were kind of connecting at one time. And I think they were all really foreign to the, you know, the Bob Clear Mountains, those kind of characters in New York, who, who which, you know, they were idols to me at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, they were icons to me in the studio, but it, but they were not part of that, that was weird new music that was happening and starting. And it was almost, you know, back then it was like cheating and, you know, it had all these weird connotations to it, you know, but I was diehard in love with Trevor Horn. I mean, that was, he was it for me. I could listen to Trevor Horn records till I was purple and I could not get enough of it. The, the, the detail and the intricacy and the, all the little stuff in the program. And that's all I wanted to do was try to create all these little nuanced things happening, you know? And I used to read about it and read how they, you know, they'd spend days and days just doing the, the little detail stuff. And it was fascinating to me. I love that. Now I know two people that work for Trevor that were engineers for Trevor. And they both tell me the same thing that all of that was done in the recording and 
the mix was pretty much ready to go and they would even leave the assistants do the mix sometimes because it was it was all there it was just a matter of balancing everything up and i don't think that's far from what i was describing before and quite honestly i I don't know if I described it well because no one's ever asked me about it before and I never thought about it before. But that's exactly what I'm talking about. We were, it was all happening in the in the programming process. All the stuff you would do in a mix, you were doing during that. It was once you committed it to tape, it was like there. You just push up the faders and go, and there it is. You know, cool. You know, you know when you think about it though. I, you live in Nashville now, and when you think about it, that's the way that the Nashville studio system kind of works only with real players, but it's the same thing, you know, that they come in and they nail it within a a few takes and it's kind of there and you're building it as you go along. Same thing. Yeah. I mean, I guess so. You know, I think what's so cool about the business we work in is that you can do it for 30 years and, and still be in awe of the way other people do things because we all do things different ways. We all come out of different backgrounds and different, you know, things like that. And it's like all these years later, I can walk into a Nashville session and go, that's awesome. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> you know, and that's cool. I think that's refreshing and keeps you moving, you know, and I, and I, and it's neat when I see people, you know, who've been in it a long time come in and they program with me and they see me programming the speed I program at and the kind of the detail and the stuff. And they go, that's great. Like people in Nashville don't program like that. <laughs> you know, that's not, you know, it, cause it, I mean, the kind of programming I'm used to doing from Chicago and New York and London, and it's that's so foreign to this city, which has obviously embraced a lot of programming, but it's the kind of programming we were doing back, you know, in the 80s underneath records, you know, when you'd bring in a guy to program drums underneath some, you know, underneath a live record, you know, Jimmy Braylaw or those kind of people, you know, yeah. who, again, like, love those people. I, all those people were such icons to me, you know, but it was DJs that for me were so much of my learning curve came from great DJs, not by choice. I was supposed to be at Berkeley getting my degree. And now I was in a room with a bunch of DJs who for the most part had no musical training, but they knew exactly what they wanted to hear. And they could envision themselves in a club and how, you know, in, in those guys' cases, 10, 14,000 people would react to a piece of music. They could just completely see it in their head. And that was, what a learning curve, you know, to be able to just be three guys in a room and one of them can picture that. And you're you're striving for these things that are not happening in the room, you know? Yeah. And, and you gradually learn how to do it. And we would actually make those records. And then he would go play them in a club, we would be still in the middle of a mix at four in the morning. He would take it, go to a club, play it, the shelter or wherever, come back, and we would keep working on it. That was weird. Nothing like instant feedback, huh? No, it'd be like it'd be like getting to play a rock, ra- you know, record on the radio, and you know, having K Rock people all call in and say what they think. You know, the whole city of LA call in and give you feedback, and then go back and make some moves. Weird, you yeah. know, it was brilliant. And and they, but those guys really, I mean. I think DJs now get so much respect because they've become pop artists, they've become stars. But back then they were more remixers, you know, and and I don't know that they ever really, it was very, you know, abstract what they were doing, the way they think and the way that they would, that intuition that they would have was very abstract, but it was really, boy, when when you saw it, you you got it, it got burned into you and you really understood it, you know, to the point where 
I could do records without them even in the room, and I would know exactly how they would feel, you know, after a hundred of them. You know, it's funny you should mention about that. You mentioned remixers, and I can remember that whatever the popular record was, and all of a sudden there'd be a remix or two or five coming out. Yeah, yeah. And at the time, I was such a rock purist that it was like, why can't they leave this alone? What are they doing? <laughs> and now I look back on it, and I can appreciate it more with some distance and go, oh, I get it. Boy, they were doing a lot, considering that you have a, a track that's finished, and you can turn it into something else. That's pretty amazing, actually. And take it in a completely different direction as well, and you go, wow, that is cool, actually. Yeah, it was a neat science. And, and I mean, ultimately what we were doing was marketing. We were making more audience for that song. Yeah. Right? That's what really our job was, was to go in there and take this, like I remember doing, you know, things like, whether it was, you know, pop artists like a Kylie Minogue or something like that, or we did rock artists. I mean, I, we were doing like a Seether record, you know? So that was like the far, you know, and, and anything in between you would do. But I remember you know, doing those records. And, and it was like that when I, when I was starting, I would think, why on earth are we doing this? Like, what is the purpose of this? You know, but yeah, it was really, ultimately it came down to, it gave the record label so many more tools to work with. It gave them the ability to expose that we're talking about an era in music. So opposite to what music is like now with kids where kids have no genre. They'll listen to everything. They're so eclectic in their tastes and they're, they're just, they don't care if it's a huge artist or a baby artist, or whether it's quirky indie rock or it's retro-y stuff. They listen to all of it, but then it was not like that, you know? So to, to build an audience, you had to actually take the piece of music and move it to a new audience. They didn't cross over. So you would redesign a piece of music for dance music lovers. You'd redesign it for urban radio. You'd redesign it for this and try to make it work. So it was really like a marketing job and you know, but it was fun. Okay. So then you moved to LA. What prompted that? Because you're doing well in New York. And then it, not only that, you come to LA and you make a left turn in your career. So how did all that happen? Yeah. Um, well, I got, well, I was still in New York at the time and, uh, I started dabbling in scoring because I had a manager who was a music supervisor. And she was very much part of the Hollywood scene, which I knew nothing about at all, like Zippo. And she was very dialed into it. She had actually um, supervised some big records, um, like big soundtracks at the time that were kind of pre-Grey's Anatomy time, like, like Go uh, Garden State, things like that, that were these breakthrough soundtracks that people were starting to kind of want to get into. And her husband was a big film director as well. And so I was dabbling in scoring with different projects with them and didn't think too much of it. I, I really moved to L.A. because hip hop got really popular really quick in New York City. It changed kind of what was happening in New York City. And less and less remixing was getting done and less and less Shaka Khan kind of records were getting done. Those live players were moving out to L.A. and kind of leaving New York. And I don't know, I just, I, I, again, I did a long tour with a band that I had produced and I thought I've been gone a while. Why not just go to LA and try something different? So I did. And, uh, it was fun, but it, the whole quirky shift into television happened because 
I had produced a, a Love and Rockets album. And there was a single on it that was on the radio at that time. And they were trying to license it for one of John Wells, who's the John Wells is the producer who did like ER and a bunch of, he was a big te television guy still is um, shameless is his most popular show on television now. Um, but he was quite a great director writer. He's really a classic Hollywood writer. And, they, he was looking for that song for something and they couldn't get it because the record label had shut down. It was a label that felt folded. And so they called me and I said, well, I can, I can make you something just like it. It was a track that I had just, the track was me. So I was like, I can make you a track like that and we can get guitars done on it and stuff like that. And so I did it in a, you know, in an afternoon and that's what started it. Then they just kept calling me. Can you do another one? Can you do this one? Can you do that one? Can you make one that sounds like this? Can you make one that sounds like that? And it became like this, really you know unique thing for a few years of there was no independent music yet indie music wasn't a thing but they needed indie music because they couldn't afford all the music they wanted or they just couldn't license it fast enough so there was a few people in la that they would call because we came out of a record production background and we could listen to it and go you need something like dave matthews and you can listen to it quickly diagnose it and make something that you know has the essence of that without copying it at all. It's not, wasn't really about copying. It was about looking at its picture and going, I see what this is doing to the scene and I understand the orchestration. So I'll do something that feels that moves the scene the same way with the same kind of elements, you know, and it just became like this little micro racket for a while. And, uh, and along doing that, I wound up, I used to work a lot with, uh, we're still business partners with one of the guys from love and rockets named Kevin Haskins, who was, uh, the drummer in Love and Rockets. And he also did the programming. So we always had that connection with the programming, the, you know, the geeky, nerdy stuff. So we, we got hired to do uh, the first TV series that we ever went up for was this, uh, was a show called um, Robbery Homicide Division. And it was uh, Michael Mann, the, the, the director who did Heat and Ali and The Insider and those things. Great, great director. And he was the executive producer. His, his big TV series was Miami Vice back in the 80s. And this was the first time he was doing TV since then. He had just moved in, done all films, and he decided he was going to make a TV series again. So we scored that. And that was really what really made the big shift was working for him. And that was awesome because he really let us roll. And he was super creative. And he was really well known for, you know, music in his movies and experimental things. So we could just do really aggressive things and stuff and probably too much. He probably, he probably was probably bad training to be honest, because he let it get away with a lot of stuff that later on was like way too much for other directors or other people, you know? Yeah. But it was fun. It was a good, it was a great experience. Now you were still programming at that point. It was mostly electronic, right? Yeah. Guitars too. But, but, you know, starting to add orchestral elements and that kind of stuff in and, but yeah, no, it was definitely, hybridy electronic almost i mean it, it was really in that sort of nine inch nailsy kind of realm there was a lot of a lot of textural stuff going on but it was very uh, gritty and dark and aggressive and it, it works great as score which you know you see you saw years later when trent and atticus started scoring movies and you went look how great this stuff works as a score it just does it grabs onto picture so well that gritty dirtiness of it just really locks in so well. And you can really, 
you know, some kinds of music you can really work with the picture. You can really manipulate and play with. And other kinds is hard, you know. It, so other things are harder to do. Or, orchestral work is really great for manipulating the picture. That kind of electronic dark stuff is great for it. Now, later, though, you started to use more real players. Yeah. Because I know you use Paul Ill a lot. Our mutual friend Paul used them all the time. So... That must have been unnatural to you because the basis of what you're doing was electronic. Why did you change? It really wasn't a change. It was two different things more. I did, a, I did two kind of different avenues of, of work. It was scoring, where, where I did tend to stay in my roots and my thing, and then doing all of that source music, stuff that sounds like songs and tracks and artists or bridging you know they maybe they put a Coldplay song into the show and they wanted a piece of score to bridge into it i started to build and feel like Coldplay, and all of a sudden you know blossoms into fix you or something and so that was the kind of stuff i would start to have more players playing on and then it i don't know it became a thing we wanted to have they definitely played on a lot of stuff but i they were also at the same time i started music directing shows performance shows Things like Star Search, what you know, the, the the precursors kind of to American Idol. Star Search and American Idol were at the same time when when I did it. I did the second version of it with uh, Arsenio Hall, and we we kind of launched at the same time as Idol, and Idol just took off like a monster and crushed everything. But for a couple of years, we ran side by side. Those were making tons and tons of backing tracks, and so I was in the studio all the time with those groups of people working with me, and Paul was one of those. So he kind of he did a lot of different things with me. We did a live band for a show mm-hmm. on set. We did a lot of different things together, but but they were definitely different. I mean, the the score stuff definitely stayed more rooted in the electronic world with orchestral elements on it. The the stuff that the the players were on was definitely that. And also we bridged into doing sitcoms and things like that and started to have a lot more quirky indie rock stuff going on and Indie rock's a fun one to play with for score. I mean, it's a it's a great quirky genre to play with comedy with and things, you know, because it sounds cool. Kids really relate to it, and it's light enough to let comedy moments breathe, but serious enough to sound cool and not sound like quirky comedy music, goofy comedy music. So, work really well. So then you're in Nashville now. How did you get there? Uh, that was the you know, pull, jump out of the plane and pull the ripcord. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it was uh, it was really a, a a decision that had nothing to do with the career. It was a decision that had a lot more to do with my son and wanting to get into a little more um, normal life and being around different people and different experiences for him, not for me. And uh, it's been a good move. It's been a really good move. I still work most of the time in LA. Um, but when I came to Nashville, I really came with a different motivation. And that was much more to sort of move into my next phase of my career, which is to try to create technology to monetize music. I felt like it had been really over the last five years, just weighing on me so hard as I would interface with young artists obviously we met doing my show at nam 
that was a big part of it too. When I started doing the show with Nam, the technology show, I just started to meet so many more people. You know, when you when you do when you're a producer or you're scoring, you're in a little bubble. You're in your little world. You don't know anybody. I mean, I don't know anybody. I just you're in your basement, whatever. You know, doing your thing. Um, that show really brought me out of that, and I, I, it forced me to interface with a lot of musicians and a lot of companies, a lot of the you know the Fenders and the Gibsons of the world and Line Sixes, and to to just see what the state of the business was, the state of companies making products, whether, you know, those companies are thriving or, or going through lean times has to do with how much money musicians are making, right? right? That's who buys their products. So no reflection on them at all. It has all to do with the music industry, you know? Um, and as I started to see that more and more, I just, I got to know more and more musicians. I got to know more and more older musicians, young musicians, kind of everything. And I just went, wow, this is not right. I grew up in a time when we were so lucky. My God, we were so lucky to work on these budgets and have people pay for everything. And I just, it was, it was really hard for me to watch. And I just felt like I don't want to see that anymore. And so I did a lot of, you know, thinking and, and sort of soul searching. I just went, I, I, I don't, I love making music and I'll keep making music, but there's got to be a way to start to help from the ground up rethink the way we do this and see if we can do some innovation that, that gets kids excited about buying music and supporting music the way we were. I want to go there in a second, but let's talk about A3E first. Is that your brainchild? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Me and a, a fellow named Paul Sitar, who's my co-founder and partner on it mm-hmm. um paul comes out of a trade show industry um he was uh he was a incubator for all sorts of funky trade shows in iit at a big fortune 100 company in new york called gartner group oh of course yeah so he was Gart- like gartner research they own all these trade shows um so paul was at gartner i was uh doing music we actually met in the late 90s we had a show back then that he launched called IMX, the Interactive Music Expo that was in New York at the Javits Center for a couple of years. Mm-hmm. And I met him at that. I was kind of helping him as a, you know, as a subject matter expert, kind of helping him meet people. And it was right when MP3.com came out and all that stuff was happening. It was that whole era. So we were talking about digital rights management and all those kind of things and trying to explain to record companies that this is real and, they're not, they don't really care about the artwork. Trust me, they don't care about the artwork. Mm. <laughs> you know, this is all going this way. And it was a big fight at the time. It didn't, you know, it was a lot of protests of it. But eventually it, it happened. And uh, we wound up regrouping together in 2013 to do another one of those kind of shows. And he asked me what I thought would be the right subject for it. And I felt like from my experience being in the studio, my co-writers and my... Uh, my collaborators were all developers, even though they weren't in the room with me. They had already done the work, you know. They created these super musical tools for us to make music with, as opposed to, you know, analog synths and the things that I was grew up with that was just a, you know, it was just a sine wave and you made whatever you wanted on it, but no one was helping you. It was just it was what it was what it was, you know. And now it's like, you know, you listen, I, I can watch TV at night and you know, I see scores, score after score, where people aren't doing anything except just using patches that these incredibly musical developers have made, these incredible soundscapes and things that'll score a scene, 
you know, it's just a few little, you know, little details here and there. And, and that's, and I'm not criticizing that either. It's just, it's just the state of how music is now, you know, and, and what the tools have grown into. And I thought, damn, these developers are so musical and they're so brilliant and they're so part of what we do that I actually felt like they should be part of the copyrights on pieces of music. You know, when you, you, you brought it up before, you said music has become loop based and all the, you know, and now, God, now even compared to in 2013, that seems like just a couple of years ago in numbers, but it, there are so many programs out now that weren't even out back then. GarageBand and some of the things were out acid, those things, but now there's a billion, all the, all the splices and sounds.com and all these companies that are just, you know, gigs and gigs and gigs of loop-based material for non-musicians to make music with. And I always go, why are the all these amazing players and amazing programmers not co-writers on all these pieces of music? That was really the inspiration behind A3. It was like, okay, wait a minute. We got to figure out how to get artists and these developers all in one place so we can all talk and we can, you know, share stories and understand what helps us and what's overwhelming to us and, and then the manufacturers were sort of the third part of it because they were just a natural fit alongside it. So those were the sort of three components of the ecosystem were, you know, techie artists with techie developers and then techie focused manufacturers, you know? Yeah. 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 So that, and then we, you know, we started exploring AI and, you know, all of those types of topics that are. Can you speak about the project that you're working on now? We're actually releasing a first version of it this coming week. Oh, so we're we're there right now. Essentially, I you know I moved to Nashville and I met a brilliant developer named Randy Younger. Um, we I had no idea he was a developer. We started talking music. We he shared. I we I've never met anybody so on the same wavelength as me in in the frustration. It might also be because it was one of the first conversations I've ever had about it. Then I, you know, subsequently found out this frustrates everybody. You know, he, his frustration was he's a great producer. He had sort of developed all of these. They were kind of he worked with a lot of legacy artists, people that had had successful careers, and he would do records with them after thinking, oh, they've got a fan base of thirty or forty thousand people. That should be easy to sell ten thousand singles, right? When you've got a forty thousand person fan base from these past records. And he just was so, I was like, just not, people don't buy music anymore. What's the deal? And I said, I, I, they never will. Obviously they're never going to. And this, you know, this ties back to the IMX days, to the A3 days, to all the production days. And it really ties to the remix days. And we started, we were talking and talking for hours and I showed him a little business plan I had of, of how I thought we could help that. And then he and I just got crazy busy on the idea of, revamping the production process from the ground up. The problem that I felt like we had in recorded music, I, my, I said to Randy, there's no sense in blaming it on anybody else. Let's blame it on us. Like, let's start right with us, me. If we don't do anything different than we've done for 40 years, then we're not creating, we're not creating a medium that can be manipulated. Kids nowadays... And I know, you know, people all feel differently about this. So this is my opinion. But contemporary media, particularly gaming, um, that is so, so enthralling to young people right now that they will spend tons of money on it, is so multi-layered. It's music. It's visuals. It's 
interaction. It's them doing it. It's all personalization. It's about them. We live in selfie community time where everybody's about us, me, 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 me. Kids all want to be me, 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 me. Um, so it was kind of a, a, a look at the entire psychology behind that and say, how can we make music that can be, that kids can dig their hands into like a video game and, and have fun with and participate and personalize. And then therefore, because they personalize it, they want all their friends to see it because all their friends will see it those friends will start to spend money on it too. And then they'll start competing with each other. So they'll want more and they'll do all the things that game, that the gaming phenomenon does to kids, which is makes them absolutely rabid consumers spending insane amounts of money, but not on music. Cause frankly, music's just boring to them. It's this completely flat thing that you do in the background. Now it's, it's a background component to another medium. And it's just not enough for them to be that engaged with. Not saying that's good or bad, right or wrong. It's just the state of the union right now. It's just the state of kids' attention span and what they're interested in. So the idea was, okay, how could we start from the multi-track process and create it like a game engine where it's got all different layers so you can make choices? Because in gaming, gaming is all about multi-layered visual environment where you can make choices. Am I going to go right? Am I going to go left? Am I, am I going to go downstairs? Or will I go upstairs? Should I change my skin? Should I change my weapon? Should I change my racket? Should I, what am I doing? You know, I need a new dance move. I'll buy a new dance move. It's only a dollar 99, mom, new dance move. I'm bored of that dance move, mom. It's a dollar 99 or I can get five of them for 499. That's half price, mom. Okay. Get five of them, 499. Can you imagine if we were throwing four ninety nine a pop at that artist right now? Yeah, that's amazing. Awesome. Yeah, right. So the idea was, how can we build up from the ground up? So we created this. This the the, the notion was okay. Everybody walks around with this. I don't have it down here, but this incredibly high powered little computer in their pocket right now, an iPhone or an Android Smart phone. Smartphone, yeah. Powerful. I mean, that's. 10x the power of what we were making records on when I started. Yeah. So why can't we run a multi-track in there? Why can't we create an engine that's not only a multi-track, but three times as, in, as deep as a multi-track? Why can't we run three multi-tracks at once in there, make it all interactive so you can sit there and play and change and remix and do what the DJs would do when we would make records? They'd walk in and we'd have all different sets of drums and they could be switching back and forth. Breakdown drums, these drums, that drums, boom, oh, live kit comes in, da-da-da-da-da. You know, and and they would sit there and craft, like you said, three or four different remixes out of one giant multi-track. That's how we get three or four different remixes with one giant multi-track. And they would make all this is the deep Jeep dub mix, and this is the pop radio remix, and this is the this, this is the that. So it was kind of bringing all those things together and saying, what if we created a multi-track where you could do all that right in the phone, and then you could share all of it through typical social media outlets. And you could promote artists and you could engage with the artists and you can run competitions with the artists. And then you could bring brands in and they could say, hey, you know, we're a pop culture brand. We want you to remix this Dirk Bentley single and you're going to win a free Ford truck, whoever does the best remix of it. Now you're sitting there remixing Dirk Bentley and sharing it with everybody you can share it with to try to get the most views because that's selfie culture. And whoever gets the most views gets a truck. And that's great for the truck company because they just got a crowdfunded advertisement made. And it's great for Dirk Bentley because he just got his music used in, a, in an advertisement and license, so everybody wins. 
What's the name of this dog? It's called Stylus. It's the the company's called Black Sleeve Media, and the and the app is called Stylus. Have you launched yet? The the, the full blown Stylus app will come out in a couple months. We're starting with a, a sort of light version of it that's called Stylus Live. That's actually tailored to individual events. So it's a much simpler version. You just take a song, you pick a you pick a version, and you share it, and it creates little viral campaigns. So. Like the first one we're doing is about uh, it's an artist in Wisconsin and it's a whole movement around anti-bullying. And so you pick a section of the song or a different remix of it. You pick one of them, you hit share. It gives you this whole, it creates a whole little video that's about anti-bullying. And then it leaves one slide open, one section open. And the one before it says, I'm kind too. And then you insert yourself in there with whatever you're kind to. You can hold up a sign, you can say it, you can do whatever you want, and then you share it and you try to get as many people to see it as you can. And so it ultimately it promotes the event, it's for suicide prevention. So we can do causes with it, we can do companies. You can also record yourself. So it's the first time you can actually sit and craft a mix of one of your favorite songs, and then you can play guitar on it. Yeah. And it'll, it'll bounce the multi-track down right in the phone and email it to you. What's the website? Uh, blacksleevemedia.com okay and app is called stylus and i believe on blacksleevemedia.com there's some maybe some early screenshots of it and stuff you can see but i can also send you some screenshots and stuff if you want to post them and you can people can kind of get a sense what i'm talking about it can do a bunch of things an artist can say you know if you were somebody super creative like a bruno mars you could say i have three different ways i perform this song you can cut them all three different ways and they'll all interact with each other so you could do an acoustic version a, a really dirty hip-hop version and then sort of an r&b version they'll all interact you can swap out all the parts with each other you can even just if you're not music you can just sit there and hit shuffle and it'll shuffle them all for you until you like something wow. it's all it's all automated like an ssl so you can put it into record and all the moves you make get recorded so you can keep punching in and doing more intricate little moves and adding effects and doing all kinds of stuff. Then you can leave parts out. You can sing, you can play, you can do whatever you want. Then you can share it all through social media because it marries it to pictures. That sounds awesome. That's it. It's yeah. really interesting. And it's so, it's basically saying, how can we gamify music? And it's all, all the monetization is done through virtual currency. So when you open up the app, you start clicking on things and all these little chests are opening bling, 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 and you're earning coins. Yeah. In order to start unlocking all the cool features, you have to have 10,000 coins. That makes you listen to the music because you get points just for sitting and listening. So as you're listening to the different mixes and playing, you're earning points. As soon as you get to 10,000, you can unlock 3D mode and then you can start to craft, you can start to automate mixes. Once you do that, then you can unlock the recorder. Then you can unlock this. Or if you're, you know, a person with limited attention span, which we know there's so few of those in the world right now, <laughs> you can also pay $4.99 and get 50,000 coins right off the bat and be able to do five of those things yeah. and spend them on filters and spend them on recording and spend them on. So you can do all these experiences just like a video game. That money goes to the artist. That's, that's just like a record sale. That's so what we're doing is we're monetizing music with the video game model for the artist got it got it and saying kids are never gonna buy they're never gonna buy music again but they'll pay for a really cool experience so we'll get them to pay for it and we'll charge it just like a 
a single sale. That's cool. I can't wait to see it, Doug. So last question. What's the best piece of business advice that either someone imparted to you or you learned along the way? The best piece of business advice I learned along the way, there's two that always stick with me. One is be diverse. There's nothing in music lasts your lifetime. We outlast everything. So you, you, you've got to be able to weather those trends as trends change. So if you do multiple things, if you can be a musical director and a producer and a programmer, and you can score and you can music supervise, you can even do licensing. There's so many avenues that are keep pulling you in and through those, all those different avenues, you keep meeting more and more people and everything just keeps flowing and working. And ultimately you can do all those things at one time because the more you can do, the more valuable you are to whatever production you're on. So I think for anybody, really be diverse. Know that you've got to be able to do a lot of different things in the business to be really valuable. And and it's harder and harder to be valuable every year right now. Yeah, yeah. Okay, that's a good one. That, what's, what's the second one? That would be my biggest piece of advice. My second piece of advice was just listen to kids. <laughs> listen to kids. Don't spin around in our own world. You know, we the consumers are children and they're growing up very quickly. Watch them, listen to them, see what they're saying, see what they know, get ideas from them. Let them, let them guide something you're doing. They have such great ideas, kids, you know, yeah. they're just brilliant little things. So I'm all about kids. You can find out more about Doug at dougdeangelis.net. That's Doug DeAngelis, all one word, D-O-U-G-D-E-A-N-G-L-I-S. Net. You can also find out about his stylus app at blacksleevemedia.com. It's all one word, blacksleevemedia.com. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyowinnercircle.com. To listen to the episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab, or go to bobbyowinnercircle.com, or you can find it on iTunes, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Play, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and now Radio Public. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyownercircle.com, you'll also find a sign-up form for my newsletter and for alerts to new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. Bye.